Welcome, fellow crime addicts, to our weekly CA meeting. I'm Kylie. And I'm Tay. Grab a cup of coffee. And let's get our fix. Addicts, this week's episode, we are switching it up a bit. We will be talking about the case of Michael Edwin Brown. And honestly, y'all, no switch up this week either for the coffee. I have been drinking this every single day since last week. It is the Copycat Annihilator. Mm, so good. So good. So if you don't already know about this recipe, head over to our website at crimaticspodcast.com and click on the coffee tab. You will see there the full recipe because it is so easy to make. And I highly recommend you check that out. So this week we are shouting out Kelly Donna 5, Avo Fire, and Moni V 1973. They've liked, commented, rated, reviewed, or shared our content across all social media outlets. So thank you guys. We are so grateful for all the support you guys have been giving us with this podcast. For your chance to get a shout out on our next episode please go like, follow, rate, review, or share across all social media platforms. You can find us at Crime Addicts Pod on iTunes, Twitter, Facebook, and IG, or at crimeaddictspodcast.com. On our website, you'll find a spot for our addicts where you can submit case recommendations. There is also a pretty amazing donate button. And if you're an Amazon shopper, click our Amazon link and it will redirect you to the Amazon site or your app. Simply add your items to your cart and check out. This process will help support our show and it doesn't cost you anything extra. August 15, 1997, Ronald Davis, 40 years old, and Greg Black, 37 years old, were murdered in cold blood in their Salt Rock, West Virginia home. Their bodies were discovered two days later. Mr. Davis had been shot in the face and was lying on the doorway to the home. Mr. Black was lying beside his bed and had been shot seven times and died of wounds to his chest and back. During the investigation, there were three males arrested and charged with their murders. This was Matthew Fortner, Joe France, and Michael Brown. The trial took place over the course of six days in February and March of 1999. During the trial, the state presented evidence that Mr. Brown sold a bag of marijuana to Mr. Davis and Mr. Black and, quote, pinched off the top or shorted the marijuana so that Mr. Davis and Mr. Black did not receive what they had paid for. After a subsequent discussion between Mr. Brown and Mr. Davis concerning this matter, Mr. Brown blamed the loss of his car keys on Mr. Davis and Mr. Black, then became angry and vowed to get even. According to the state, Mr. Brown later convinced Mr. Fortner to accompany him to Mr. Black's house for the purpose of robbing Mr. Davis and Mr. Black of anti-anxiety pills. In the early morning hours of August 15, 1997, Mr. Brown and Mr. Fortner went to the victim's home, and Mr. Brown shot both the victims. The state's evidence presented at trial consisted essentially of the testimony of Sean Sullivan, Bobby Pullen, Daniel Gosney, Jason Pinkerton, Michael Mount, and Matthew Fortner, all of whom regularly drank alcoholic beverages and took drugs with Mr. Brown. 
Mr. Poland testified that Mr. Brown told him that he was going to, quote, get Mr. Davis and Mr. Black for taking his keys. Mr. Mount testified that immediately after the murders, Mr. Brown admitted to him that, quote, me and Matt, meaning Matt Fortner, went out there and shot those two guys that took my keys, end quote. Mr. Fortner testified that he accompanied Mr. Brown to rob Mr. Davis and Mr. Black and witnessed Mr. Brown shoot them. The defense's evidence consisted of the testimony of an expert in gunshot residue who testified essentially that residue would have been found in Mr. Brown's vehicle if he had fired a gun at the time of the murders. Additionally, Mr. Brown's father and sister testified of his normal behavior immediately after the murders, and Mr. Brown's mother testified that her son arrived home at 2.52 a.m. on the morning of August 15, 1997, which conflicts with the state's witnesses' testimony concerning when the murders occurred, which was allegedly between 3 and 4 a.m. Lastly, Mr. Brown testified and denied any involvement in the murders. The defense also vigorously attacked the credibility of the state's witnesses. The jury found Mr. Brown guilty of two counts of first-degree murder. A bifurcated hearing was held several days later at which the jury granted mercy to Mr. Brown. At the close of the hearing, the trial court sentenced Mr. Brown to consecutive life terms, which means one after the other. Life in the state of West Virginia carries a sentence of a minimum of 15 years in prison, which means he was sentenced to serve at least 30 years before being eligible for parole. Now, you're probably wondering what happened to Mr. Brown's co-defendants in the case. Well, Mr. France escaped prosecution by breaking and entering to testify against Mr. Brown, so he was convicted of no charges. And Mr. Fortner took a plea to drop one of the murder charges in exchange for his testimony against Mr. Brown. Mr. Fortner was sentenced to life in prison with mercy, meaning he was eligible for parole after 15 years. Mr. Fortner also filed a petition for habeas relief alleging only ineffective assistance of counsel and was granted relief in 2009. Okay, so Kylie just summed up the trial, but I want to get into the dirty details that kind of led us to that point. Let's do it. Okay, so both Mr. Fortner and Mr. France had criminal history arrest records where Mr. Brown did not. Okay, Mr. Fortner was also dishonorably discharged from the military. On August 20th, 1997, uh, Mr. Brown relocated to Charleston, South Carolina, where he enrolled in the culinary arts school at Johnson and Wales University. He was taking classes, had his own apartment, and had begun a part-time job with goals of being a chef. So three days later, The house where Mr. Black and Mr. Davis were murdered, caught on fire, and was severely burned down. After a cursory investigation, the police called the fire arson. It was reported that a man named Jason Pinkerton, along with a male passenger, was seen driving in the area of the house while it burned. Do we remember that name? Sounds familiar. Hmm. So the same evening of the fire... Jason Pinkerton, Daniel Gosney, Matt Fortner, and Joe France leave West Virginia and drive to Florida. On or about August 28th, so a few days after that, Canadian tourist Margaret Thompson, who was 79, and her husband James, who who was 81, were tied up and robbed in their Daytona Beach, Florida motel room. The police were able to link Mr. France and Mr. Fortner to the crimes, and they were apprehended at their motel room based 
on a tip. Armed, the two men took the tourist money, traveler's checks, and credit cards. The weapon used was a Glock 9mm handgun and was later discovered to be the same weapon that had been used in the West Virginia murders of Mr. Black and Mr. Davis. Warrants had also been issued for their arrest out of West Virginia by this time as well, so they were held on those warrants. Mr. Fortner had previously been advised by his stepfather that the West Virginia State Police had been to his house and had collected evidence. The two men both began giving statements about the West Virginia murders, and Mr. Fortner alleged that Mr. Brown was responsible. This was in an attempt to have the Florida charges against them dropped. However, they ended up implicating themselves due to West Virginia having a felony murder rule, which this statute provides that if someone kills another during the commission of or attempt to commit arson, kidnapping, sexual assault, robbery, burglary, breaking, and entering, escape from lawful custody, or like a felony offense of manufacturing or delivering a controlled substance, shall be guilty of first-degree murder, a.k.a. his admitting part in the crime is still charged as first-degree murder, so his extradition was inevitable. So he tried to admit that he was a part of it to get out of it. Right. And then he implicated himself. Yeah. Okay. (laughs) All right. Throughout being questioned by both the Florida and West Virginia authorities, Mr. Fortner gave seven different statements about the murders, and Mr. France gave numerous contradictory statements as well. For example, in their first statements, they both said Mr. Brown was driving a Chevy Blazer on the night of the murders that sat approximately four feet off the ground and had a very loud muffler. In their next couple of statements, they said Mr. Brown was driving a Subaru Legacy, However, Mr. Brown had sold the Chevy Blazer on August 11th, 1997, and his parents had given him a Subaru Legacy to take with him to college. They both said they rode in the vehicle the night of the murders, but those are very different vehicles. Additionally, they both claimed Mr. Brown shot Mr. Black and Mr. Davis. However, their stories of what happened continuously changed and were not consistent. In court, Mr. Fortner testified that he and Mr. Brown approached the victim's house and Mr. Brown knocked on the door. Mr. France remained in the car and was not involved in the shooting. A man verbally answered, and Mr. Brown stated, quote, This is Mike Brown. I've got the money that I owe you, end quote. When the man opened the door, Mr. Brown shot him in the face. Mr. Brown and Mr. Fortner entered the house, and another man asked what the noise had been, whereupon Mr. Brown shot him seven or eight times. According to the medical examiner, Mr. Davis was shot once with the bullet entering through the mouth and striking the spinal cord, causing death soon thereafter. And Mr. Black was shot seven times, five of which were in the chest and back, causing death. Ultimately, Mr. Fortner admitted to being present at the murders, but did not admit to being the shooter and pointed the finger at Mr. Brown. Mr. Fortner also claims the murders occurred between 3 a.m. and 4 a.m. when Mr. Fortner says he took Mr. France home after the murders and arrived home himself at 4 or 4.30 a.m. During Mr. Mount's testimony, he stated his conversation with Mr. Brown that included the confession took place at Mr. Pinkerton's residence immediately after the event and there was no mention of Mr. France. Mr. Brown was contacted by the West Virginia State Police and told he needed to return to Huntington, West Virginia for questioning. He returned on his own free will. Upon arriving back to West Virginia, the police arrested Mr. Brown and charged him with the murders of Mr. Davis and Mr. Black. Since that time, 
Mr. Brown has maintained that he did not murder Mr. Davis or Mr. Black. His story goes like this. On the night of the murders, Mr. Brown went to the local bar called the Drop Shop, then to Mr. Pinkerton's residence, and then he gave Mr. Mount a ride home. Mr. Brown left the Drop Shop at approximately 2 a.m., dropped Mr. Mount off at his home, and arrived home around 3 a.m. Carolyn Brown, which is Mr. Brown's mother, concurred that Mr. Brown arrived home at 2.52 a.m. She remembered because she was awake, and when he came home, she looked at the time on the microwave digital clock. Mr. Mount also concluded that he arrived home at approximately 3 a.m. This time frame puts Mr. Brown home at the time of the murders, according to Mr. Fortner's given time frame. The physical evidence in this case was found at both Mr. Fortner's home in West Virginia and at Mr. Fortner's and Mr. Francis' hotel room in Florida. Mr. Fortner's car was never searched, and he sold it only a month after the murders. However, Mr. Brown's vehicle was searched and tested. No evidence was found related to this crime. Mr. Fortner was known to always carry a backpack that contained a semi-automatic Tech 9mm handgun and a dagger. It was also discovered that Mr. Fortner maintained a journal with entries that described his love of darkness, his attempt to control a circle of friends, his problem of being a pathological liar, and his abusive nature. Mr. France was known to carry a Glock 9mm handgun with him, and it was his gun that was determined to be the weapon used to kill Mr. Black and Mr. Davis. The state's ballistics expert, Clarence Lane, testified that all of the bullets recovered from the crime scene were fired from the Glock 9 handgun. Additionally, the only palm print that was located on the gun belonged to Mr. France. In their Florida hotel room, Mr. Fortner and Mr. France also had a diagram for constructing a handgun silencer, as well as bullets matching the ones at the crime scene in West Virginia. Mr. Fortner maintained that Mr. Brown had gone home and burned the clothes he was wearing the night of the murders in the woods behind the house. Mr. Brown lived in a residential neighborhood and there were no woods behind or anywhere around his house. There are, however, woods behind Mr. Fortner's home and he never produced the clothing he was wearing on the night of the murders. Mr. Brown did have the clothes and shoes he was wearing on the night of the murders, but there is no blood stain on them. According to the experts, the murderer should have been covered in blood after the shootings. Jason Pinkerton reported that he overheard Mr. Brown, Mr. Fortner, and Mr. France plan a robbery of the victim's house on the evening of August 14, 1997. Mr. Pinkerton testified that he told the three men that the victims had guns, and Mr. Brown responded, quote, We'll shoot back if we have to. The prosecutor's theory on the modus operandi was that Mr. Brown and Mr. Fortner went to the victim's home to rob them since it was assumed they stole Mr. Brown's lost car keys. However, the police were, one, unable to conclude a robbery took place at the victim's home and there was no evidence of such, and two, the car keys were never proven to be stolen, let alone who stole them. The car keys also did end up being found a couple days later. I wish there was more information on how, when, where these car keys were stolen, but there is not. Also, how was Mr. Brown driving to the victim's house, regardless of what car he took, if he didn't have the keys? I need more information on this as well. Months prior to these events, Mr. France's father's machine shop was burglarized by Mr. Mount, Mr. Fortner, and Mr. France himself. 
The charges of breaking and entering were dropped, but the prosecutor brought this up in questioning with Mr. Mount and advised he would have immunity from receiving future prosecution on those charges if he testified against Mr. Brown. Mr. Mount ended up testifying that Mr. Brown told him that he and Mr. Fortner killed the victims. Remember, initially Mr. Mount submitted a statement to police that did not mention Mr. Brown being involved in this crime. Mr. France was not called to testify because his statement at the time was that he was not present during the commission of the murders. After Mr. Brown's trial had concluded, Mr. France admitted to being a lookout for the quote, robbery. During and after the trial, it was discovered that some of the jurors were not completely honest during their pre-trial questioning. Joy Bryant, the forewoman of the jury, never disclosed that her son and Mr. Fortner had been close friends in high school. Allegedly, the two boys had even shared a locker. Mr. Brown's attorney found this out during the sentencing phase of the trial. The attorneys approached the judge about this matter and asked for a mistrial. However, the judge denied the request and the sentencing proceeded. Another juror, Brenda Foster, who we will refer to as Brenda Wickline going forward, did not disclose that her son, Michael Foster, had been indicted on September 18, 1998, for aiding and abetting a kidnapping. The indictment was about five months before Mr. Brown's trial. The same prosecutor, who was on Mr. Brown's case for the state, also did not disclose the indictment of Mr. Foster during the jury selection. Additionally, attorney R. Lee Booten II represented Mr. Foster and also Mr. Fortner. So here's a timeline for Mr. Foster and Mr. Brown's case, just so we can kind of get an idea. So remember, Mr. Foster is the child of the juror, and Mr. Brown is who is a, the one who has been convicted of murder. So first was on May 13th, 1999, Mr. Foster's case was transferred to Judge Dan O'Hanlon. On August 27th, 1999, Mr. Foster pleaded guilty to the charges Judge O'Hanlon sentenced Mr. Foster to three to six years in the West Virginia State Penitentiary, which he suspended and placed him in forestry camp with the recommendation that he be sent to the Anthony Center for six months to two years. On September 21st of 1999, Miss Wickline wrote Judge O'Hanlon a letter telling him her son could not handle being in jail. On December 1st of 1999, Judge O'Hanlon once again suspended Mr. Foster's sentence and gave him three years of home incarceration with time served. Mr. Foster's co-defendant, Ralph Morgan, was sentenced to 10 to 25 years in the West Virginia State Penitentiary. So doesn't that kind of seem like Mr. Foster received a good deal in comparison due to having his mother write a letter and serve on the jury for Mr. Brown in comparison to what his co-defendant got sounds pretty sweet to me i mean i hey mom get some (laughs) pen and paper get some (laughs) templates ready you know just in case because that'll save me what 15 years yeah very very sweet very cool Mm -hmm. love it love it all right so the prosecutor we just have a little bit more to get through before we start working into the appeals so the prosecutor chris childs offered Mr. Fortner life in prison with mercy, which means a chance at parole in 15 years, on only one count of murder in exchange for his testimony during Mr. Brown's trial, and of course he took it. Mr. Brown was offered a plea deal in exchange for his admission of the murders. 
He would have been convicted of the two murders, but the sentences would have ran concurrently, which means at the same time. And so that would have given him the same opportunity to possibly make parole after 15 years. However, Mr. Brown declined the offer as he was not willing to admit to committing a crime that he did not commit. And also, by the way, I know we did previously mention this, but just to reiterate, in 2009, Mr. Fortner filed a petition for habeas relief alleging only ineffective assistance of counsel and was granted relief. He ultimately entered a plea to a lesser charge. He was incarcerated, but had been released at the time of his alleged exculpatory statements. So let's get a little bit into the appeals. So on May 1st of 2001, the Supreme Court of Appeals of West Virginia, number 28404, where the state of West Virginia was listed as the plaintiff and Michael Brown was listed as the defendant. Mr. Brown appealed the conviction of two counts of first-degree murder with mercy and his sentence of two consecutive life terms in the state penitentiary. Here are the arguments and appeals made by the defense along with the state's positions and responses to each. So this appeal was very, very long and lengthy, but we have done our best to summarize and uh, just so that you guys understand what's really going on here. So the first point of the appeal is the defense argued that the court erred by allowing a 13th juror to attend jury deliberations. The state declined to reconsider because the defense did not object at trial and that there were mere presence during the deliberations did not cause the jury to convict rather than to acquit. In the second point of the appeal, the defense contends that the trial court erred in discharging a tardy juror prior to jury deliberations. So basically in this situation, a jury called in to say that he had a flat tire and would be late. So the court discharged that juror and replaced him with another juror with no objections. The defense on appeal is claiming that a brief and temporary absence does not constitute an inability to perform the duty of a juror and that he, Mr. being Mr. Brown, had a right to have his case decided by the original 12 persons selected as jurors. So the state's response to this point is that it is within the court's discretion to discharge and replace a juror for any reason. It also was not objected to at the trial. They were also unable to find a record of this juror ever arriving to the court because the trial transcripts just simply indicate that they dismissed the juror and that he was not present at the time that the court instructed the jury. Lastly, there was no evidence that participation by the discharged juror would have changed the jury verdict or that the juror who took his place was prejudiced against Mr. Brown. The third point of the appeal is the defense claimed that the trial court erred in conducting discussions with counsel regarding jury instructions while Mr. Brown was not present. The prosecutor at that point reminded the trial court that Mr. Brown was not present and the discussion was suspended until he arrived. The trial court then summarized what had occurred in his absence. The defense now argues that this absence at a critical stage in the proceedings mandates a reversal of his conviction, even though a record was made of those proceedings. The defendant asserts that the discussion of the jury instructions was important and that he may have had meaningful input. The state responded that Mr. Brown's absence during several minutes of the instructions conference was 
harmless error, and that Mr. Brown signed a notice of requirement to be present at hearings in which he expressly waived his right to be present at any stage of the trial. The state also argued that nothing occurred during the portion of the instructions conference during which Mr. Brown was absent that could have affected the outcome of the trial. Furthermore, the state asserted that any harm caused by Mr. Brown's absence was cured by the fact that upon his arrival, the trial court summarized what occurred in his absence. This gave Mr. Brown the opportunity to address the, the proposed jury instructions, which were discussed prior to his arrival. Further, a defendant need not be present at a conference or argument upon a technical question of law. The transcript indicates that the discussion of the instructions during Mr. Brown's absence concerned questions of law and not questions of fact that would be within his knowledge. In the fourth point of the appeal, according to the defense, more time was needed for the gunshot residue expert to replicate the test performed by the state on Mr. Brown's vehicle. This is kind of interesting. So the state's gunshot tests on Mr. Brown's vehicle conducted approximately two to three weeks after the murders were negative for the presence of any gunshot residue in the vehicle's interior. The state's explanation for this at trial was that gunshot residue can be easily transferred from one surface to another, washed off, blown away, or diminished to the point of non-detection. Mr. Brown sought to counter the state's explanation with the testimony of his own expert witness to show that if Mr. Brown had fired the gun which killed the victims and then driven from the crime scene in his own vehicle as alleged by the state, gunshot residue would have been present in the interior of his vehicle. The defense now presents that the trial court's failure to allow additional time for his expert to complete his testing constituted prejudicial error. The trial transcripts reveals that on a February 5th, 1999 pretrial hearing, the defense moved for a continuance of the February 22nd, 1999 trial date. One of the stated reasons for the motion was that the defense had received the murder weapon only a week prior to the hearing. After listening to the arguments of counsel, the trial court denied the motion of the continuance, quote, at this time. However, another pretrial hearing occurred on February 19, 1999, at which time the defendant clearly moved to withdraw his motion to continue the trial. Evidence presented by the defense at trial indicates that the defendant's gunshot residue expert received the murder weapon on January 28, 1999, and performed his first test on February 11, 1999. Essentially, the expert fired the murder weapon eight times, then drove his vehicle for 10 minutes. Three samples were then collected from the vehicle's interior and tested for gunshot residue. Numerous particles of gunshot residue were identified on each of the three samples. The expert reported these results to the defendant on February 16th, at which time it was decided that additional testing would be done. On February 18th, additional testing was conducted and gunshot residue was again identified on each of the three samples. The results of both tests were presented at trial. The state responded to this point that in Mr. Brown's written motion to continue, the defense's expert lab reports were not complete due to the late production of the murder weapon by the state. The defense expert's tests were completed and submitted to the defense by the time of the trial and that this evidence was presented at trial. Also, the defense claimed that the interviewing of three witnesses, Terry Michael Mount, Erica Oblinger and Daniel Gosney were not complete. 
The transcript shows that Terry Michael Mount and Daniel Gosney testified at the trial and were thoroughly questioned by the defense. Erica Oblinger was not called as a witness by either the state or the defense. Additionally, the defense claims that they needed more time to review the state's audio of the crime scene. The hearing on the defense's motion to continue was held on February 5th, which was 17 days prior to the trial date. The court is confident that the defense had the opportunity to review this evidence during that period. Finally, the fact that the defense withdrew their motion to continue three days prior to the trial indicated they were prepared for trial. The fifth point of the appeal is that the defense claimed the trial court erred by, quote, going off the record at least nine times during the trial. The defense argues that several of the matters discussed off the record involve serious issues or unknown discussions and that the cumulative effort of this error should operate to infer prejudice to Mr. Brown. The state's review of the nine instances in summary concluded that the defense's appeal was not specifically prejudiced by any of the off-the-record discussions. Only one of these discussions relates to an issue raised on appeal, the dismissal of the tardy juror, which was not objected to by the defense, and which they already determined was not an error. Also, defense counsel never objected to any of the off-the-record conferences and never attempted to vouch the record. The sixth point listed on the appeal was that the defense appeals that the trial court erred in denying Mr. Brown's motion to hire a jury specialist at the public's expense. According to the defense, a jury specialist was reasonably necessary to their development of the relevant issues in the case in order to provide research and statistical data useful to the jury selection process. Further, the defense says that the trial court did not set forth its reason for denying the motion. By written motion filed on November 2, 1998, the defendant's court-appointed counsel requested that he be allowed to hire a jury specialist at the state's expense because, quote, this case is a murder case in which the defendant faces a possible life sentence, end quote. In a January 11, 1999 hearing, defense counsel supported his written motion by stating that he had previously hired a jury specialist and the results were, quote, excellent. After the state argued against the motion, the trial court stated, quote, I'm going to deny that at this time, end quote. The state indicates in response that the defense completely failed to present any facts particular to this case, which justified the hiring of a jury specialist. Instead, defense counsel merely suggested that this was a murder case where a life sentence was possible and that he had retained a specialist in a previous case and the results were excellent. This is plainly insufficient detail to support reimbursement for a jury specialist. The seventh point of the appeal was the defense submitted that the trial court erred in denying his motion for a jury view of the crime scene. According to the defense, Mr. Fortner's eyewitness testimony of the murders described the relative positions of Mr. Fortner and Mr. Brown and when Mr. Davis was shot at the door, and evidence of spent shell casings indicate that the shot may have been fired from where Mr. Fortner was standing. Also, a neighbor testified about hearing a gunshot, and a jury view would have aided the jury in assessing the validity of the testimony. Finally, the videotape of the scene presented at trial did not show the deceased body and its relation to the front door. At the February 5, 1999 hearing, defense counsel supported his motion for a view of the crime scene by stating, 
quote, Although the house was burned partially, there's enough of it left for the jury to get an idea of where things were at the time of the police entering the crime scene, end quote. In response, the state argued that the crime scene was not the same as the time of the murders due to the subsequent arson. The damage to the crime scene rendered it dangerous, i.e. someone could fall through the floor. Photographs and a videotape of the crime scene would enable the jury to visualize the scene. The scene was an hour's bus ride away, and the jurors would have to walk up a steep driveway. The trial court concluded that the defense made an insufficient showing of need for a view of the crime scene. Further, while the defense now complains that the videotape of the crime scene did not show Ronald Davis's body and its location relative to the front door, it was the defense who moved for the redaction from the videotape of the victim's bodies. In the eighth point of the appeal, the defense claims that the trial court erred in deviating from the alternate juror selection procedure. The trial court initially identified 26 acceptable jurors after the jury selection. The trial court then instructed its clerk to randomly choose six jurors to constitute the pool of potential alternates. The clerk chose jurors 10 through 15. The state and the defense were then allowed to strike out regular and pool jurors until they were left with 12 regular jurors and two pool jurors. On appeal, the defense argues that a clerk should not be allowed to choose potential alternate jurors because he or she could choose jurors believed to be hostile to the outcome desired by the clerk and diminish the chance that those jurors would participate in deliberations. In response, the state says that the defense did not object to the trial court's method of choosing the jury panel, and the state found that no prejudice resulted to Mr. Brown. They indicated that the defense made no claim of prejudice. While the defense raises the concern that a biased clerk could selectively choose alternate jurors, they did not contend that this did occur. Also, the state claims to be aware of no statute rule, or case law indicating that the trial court's method of choosing jurors was error. The ninth point of the appeal was the defense claims that the prosecuting attorney should have known there was a substantial probability that some evidence against Mr. Brown was false and that this false evidence materially affected the verdict. The defense points to the low character and incentive to lie of the state's witnesses and appears to argue that this should have put the prosecutor on notice that these witnesses were not telling the truth. Also, the defense asserts that the prosecuting attorney owed the defense a more thorough investigation of Mr. Fortner before accepting his version of the facts, and notes that no testing was done on Mr. Fortner's vehicle. The defense clarifies, however, that he is not accusing the prosecuting attorney of any knowing impropriety. The state was not convinced by the defendant's argument. Not only is there no evidence in the record which supports the claim that the prosecutor knew or should have known that the evidence was false, there is no proof that any of the state's evidence was actually false. Rather, all that the defense can demonstrate is that Mr. Fortner and other state's witnesses were disreputable persons who had reasons to lie. The witnesses' characters and motives were adduced at trial and argued at length to the jury. Further, it was the role of the jury to weigh the evidence and make credibility assessments after it observed the witness and heard their testimony. 
The jury made its determination and the court will not second guess, second guess it simply because they may have assessed the credibility of the witnesses differently. In the 10th point of the appeal, the defense claims that Mr. Brown's sentence should be vacated and remanded for a pre-sentence investigation or report, a full opportunity for allocution, and resentencing. The defense's trial and sentencing was bifurcated, and at the bifurcated hearing, which occurred five days after the jury reached its guilty verdict, the defendant initially waived a pre-sentence investigation and report, but later reversed himself. The trial court at first agreed that the defendant had a right to an investigation and report, but ultimately determined that no such investigation was needed. The trial court reasoned that a bifurcated hearing was sufficient for sentencing, adding, quote, I don't understand what a pre-sentence investigation could add to a sentencing hearing, end quote. On appeal, the defense contended that the trial court's determination that the sentencing hearing was satisfactory was in error and that Mr. Brown was prejudiced because if his sentences were concurrent instead of consecutive, he would be eligible for parole in 15 years rather than 30. At the time, the state responded that a pre-sentence investigation was not necessary where there has been a bifurcated sentencing hearing because at the close of the bifurcated hearing, the trial court has all of the necessary information in order to sentence the defendant. According to Rule 32 of the West Virginia Rules of Criminal Procedure, which provides, in summary, that a pre-sentence investigation or report shall be conducted unless waived by the defendant, which Mr. Brown did not do. Therefore, the defense concluded that a pre-sentence investigation and report was required prior to Mr. Brown's bifurcated sentencing. In response, the state said that even though the defense did not specifically object to this error, the state did find that the failure to prepare a pre-sentence report resulted in prejudice to Mr. Brown. Therefore, a pre-sentence investigation and report could result in a significant change in Mr. Brown's sentence. Accordingly, because the trial court failed to properly apply Rule 32 and this failure may have adversely affected Mr. Brown's sentence, the state reversed Mr. Brown's sentence and remanded for the preparation of a pre-sentence report in accordance with Rule 32 and a new sentencing hearing. So they finally agreed on something. After 10 points. Yeah. We finally got a win. (laughs) So... The last point within this appeal was the defense urged the court to reverse his convictions. According to the defense, the case was weak in nature of the evidence against him. For example, Mr. Fortner testified against the defendant after receiving a plea bargain, granting him mercy on one first-degree murder charge. Mr. France escaped prosecution for breaking and entering to testify against Mr. Brown. Also, Mr. France owned the murder weapon, and his palm print was the only print found on the weapon. In addition, Mr. Mount was given immunity for breaking and entering in exchange for testifying against Mr. Brown. Finally, none of the testimony was corroborated by scientific evidence. So basically, because of all the errors occurred, they were prejudiced against Mr. Brown where had any of them occurred singularly, they would not have caused prejudice. The state determined that allowing a 13th juror to attend jury deliberations, Mr. Brown's absence from a discussion concerning jury instructions, the trial's court's off-the-record discussions with counsel, and permitting counsel of both sides an additional peremptory strike of potential alternative jurors constituted harmless error. 
The state believed that these errors were viewed in the context of the entire trial and the evidence adduced were not numerous and did not prevent Mr. Brown from receiving a fair trial. Accordingly, the state affirmed Mr. Brown's convictions of two counts of first-degree murder with mercy. So in conclusion of this whole appeal, Mr. Brown appealed his conviction of two counts of first-degree murder with mercy and his sentence of two consecutive life terms in the state penitentiary. In response, the state affirmed Mr. Brown's conviction, but they reversed his sentence of consecutive life terms and remanded for a pre-sentence report and a new sentencing hearing. So essentially, basically picture it that like he went to court, he had the trial, and the state is saying that trial and everything is still valid. All the points that were there, the state side, the defense side, everything is still valid. So we agreed to that much. But we still want him remanded. He's still going to be in custody. And the only other hearing that we're going to allow to redo is for sentencing specifically. Should he be in for consecutive or concurrent life sentences with mercy? So 15 or 30 years. Okay. So Kylie just kind of broke down what the appeal, what happened within the appeal. What I'm going to go into right now is the defendant's response to the state's response of the appeal. So, this was decided upon on May 1st of 2001. So, on July 24th, 2001, and July 25th, 2001, the defense counsel filed a response indicating that he disagrees for the following reasons. Quote, I dissent because this defendant's conviction was obtained under circumstances that amounted to a less than fair trial. Specifically, there was an illegal guest in the jury room, an alternative juror who had absolutely no right to be there. The majority makes the argument that this illegal person in the jury room did not participate in the jury's deliberations, but surely we cannot be so naive as to believe that the legitimate jurors never interacted in any way with the illegal person in the jury room, that the illegal person never raised an eyebrow or made a frown during the deliberations, nor am I inclined to rely on juror affidavits as to what happened in the jury room to excuse clearly illegal conduct in connection with a criminal conviction. The majority's argument could logically extend to having several alternative jurors in the jury room. And if non-participation in the jury's deliberation is the test, why not invite the bailiff to sit in as long as he or she promises to keep quiet? As Chief Justice McGraw stated in his dissent in State v. Leitner of 1999, a dissent in which I joined, In clear contrast to the view of the majority of this court, I view a defendant's right to a jury of 12 as a fundamental constitutional privilege. Indeed, the express directive contained in Article 3, subsection 14 of the West Virginia Constitution, which commands that all criminal trials shall be by a jury of 12, leaves room for no other conclusion. Thus, Any deviation from this constitutional requirement must be accomplished through a knowing and intelligent waiver. In addition to improperly excusing the aforesaid clear violation of the West Virginia Constitution that underlies the appealant's criminal conviction, the majority opinion responds to each of the appealant's other assignments of error, including the denial of a continuance, the denial of a jury specialist, and the denial of a jury view with a rote, 
repetition of the doctrines of judicial discretion and harmless error. Unlike the majority, in this close case, where only the testimony of a self-serving criminal implicated the defendant, I would hold the multiple adverse rulings of the trial judge towards the appealant constituted cumulative error that also requires reversal of the appealant's conviction. I would reverse and remand for a new trial, and I think this court is now ready to revisit Leitner. I would reverse Brown's conviction for the same reasons expressed in my dissent to State v. Leitner of 1999, in that any deviation from the constitutional requirement of 12 jurors must be accomplished through a knowingly and intelligent waiver. Resort to plain error analysis is therefore misplaced in this context, and a violation of the constitutional right to 12-person jury must be presumed prejudicial absence, an affirmative showing that the error was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. See Grobe v. Blair, 1975. Failure to observe a constitutional right constitutes reversible error unless it can be shown that the error was harmless beyond a reasonable doubt. Contrary to the position taken by the majority, the fact that the alternative did not actively participate in deliberation is far from dispositive, as prejudice may arise either because the alternatives actually participated in the deliberations, verbally or through body language, or because the alternative's presence exerted a chilling effect on the regular jurors. United States v. Olano, 1993. Since I would reverse and remand for a new trial on this issue, I respectfully dissent. So as a result, a pre-sentence report was prepared and the hearing was held. On July 6 of 2001, after considering the pre-sentence report, the circuit court reimposed the original sentence of two consecutive terms of life imprisonment with mercy. Next, Mr. Brown filed a petition for a writ of habeas corpus on May 2nd of 2002, so like about a year later. This was amended on July 26th of 2005 and again on May 14th of 2009. In the 2009 petition, this is where it is first mentioned that, among other things, the actions of a juror created a presumption of bias on the part of that juror and a presumption of prejudice to Mr. Brown this being Juror Wickline, of course. During the course of the habeas proceedings, Judge O'Hanlon granted leave for the parties to take the deposition of Juror Wickline. The deposition was taken on December 30th, 2009, and made part of the record in the habeas proceedings. Juror Wickline stated in her affidavit and deposition that she failed to disclose three connections to the Cabell County legal system where she acted as juror in Mr. Brown's trial, all three connections involving her son's criminal indictment. Juror Wickline testified in her deposition that she did not tell the court during Mr. Brown's trial that one, her son, Michael Foster, had been indicted in Cabell County and was scheduled to appear for trial in front of the same trial judge as Mr. Brown. Two, though she did not know him personally, she knew of assistant prosecutor Joe Martarella, whose name was read as a member of the Cabell County Prosecutor's Office during the jury selection process. Because Mr. Martarella was the prosecutor assigned to Juror Wickline's son's criminal case. And three, four days into the trial, Juror Wickline noticed that her son's attorney, Lee Booten, appeared in the back 
of the courtroom and seemed to be the attorney for one of the state's primary witnesses, Mr. Fortner, a fact Jura Wickline apparently never brought to anyone's attention. She said she did not disclose the fact of her son's case to the court because the judge asked whether any family members, quote, had been defendants. Jura Wickline testified that first, she did not think her son was yet a defendant, having only been charged with a crime, and second, the question was framed in the past tense. She also admitted, however, that she was frightened and intimidated by Judge O'Hanlon and afraid, stressed, intimidated, ashamed, and embarrassed by her son's criminal conduct and being in a courtroom. With respect to Mr. Martorella, Jura Wickline stated in her deposition that she did not disclose knowing him because she did not, quote, know him personally, only a, quote, person who is a name you know, nobody I really knew, end quote. Unlike the witness she knew personally and admitted knowing during jury selection. With respect to Lee Booten, Jury Wickline explained in her deposition that she did not disclose her connection to Mr. Booten, who was apparently an attorney for one of the state's witnesses in Mr. Brown's trial, because she, quote, thought being a small town that, you know, it didn't dawn on me that would be a problem, end quote. Juror Wickline maintained that she was fair, unbiased, and impartial as a juror at Mr. Brown's trial, even stating that she, quote, was more apt to show mercy toward Michael Brown, if anything, end quote. She stated in her deposition that she, quote, didn't fully understand, but when she thought a jury selection question applied to her, she answered it. And it was only after the passage of 10 years, when she was contacted by Mr. Brown's counsel, that Jura Wickline began to have doubts about not disclosing the fact of her son's case during Mr. Brown's trial. Judge O'Hanlon held a habeas hearing to consider arguments on the issue of Jura Wickline's non-disclosures. On April 12, 2010, Judge O'Hanlon entered an amended order denying relief on the juror issue, but granted Mr. Brown's request to raise another issue. The defense filed a motion for reconsideration, which was assigned to Judge Cummings due to Judge O'Hanlon's retirement. On January 7, 2011, Judge Cummings issued an order granting habeas corpus relief, concluding that another case referenced in the trial, which was State v. Dellinger, required a different result than that reached by Judge O'Hanlon. Judge Cummings ordered a new trial. Thereafter, Mr. Brown filed a motion for reconsideration, which was denied by Judge Cummings. Okay, Taylor, we have gotten through so much information as it is, and we still have so much to go that we actually have to break this one into two episodes. Oh my gosh. I know. I can't <laughs> wait to get to these discussion questions. I know. I want to just like blurt it out just already. Just jump to the end. Okay. So we're going to stop here and we will see you guys next time. Stay tuned for part two of Michael Edwin Brown. Michael Edwin Brown.